Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. And welcome back to Overnight America. Some of the major policy changes happening on day one. We've seen the president talk about the Keystone Pipeline. And one of the other big ones is immigration and some of the changes that will be coming there. Joining us this hour, in fact, for the next couple of segments, is a senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, also an author of an upcoming book called America's Covert Border War, Todd Benzman. Thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. Hey, I appreciate you having me. So this book is actually out here pretty soon, a few weeks away, isn't it? Just maybe two weeks away? Uh, yeah, February 9, it drops, America's Covert Border War. Appreciate you mentioning it. Uh, yeah. About the um, uh, government uh, counterterrorism programs that are, have been hidden uh, secret for 15 years down on the border and in Latin America to catch jihadists migrating over it over the southern border yeah it, we actually um uh, got to point out the the southern border there's all kinds of things that happen down there that we are just not a, made aware of and it's pretty terrifying some of the things that they've stopped coming from the southern border and it needs to be pointed out that the the border patrol and those that have worked down there have been doing some pretty amazing work it's very serious things down there so i'm glad that you wrote this book but uh, one of the big shifts in the Biden administration is the way that they handle this down on the border when it comes to migration of large groups of people coming through. What are we going to do when people reach the border? How are, how is that going to change? I'm wondering if we might be able to go back and look at the previous administration. So we have President Obama who handled it differently from President Trump and now President Biden who's going to handle it different from President Trump. So when we go back and look at maybe the last 10 years of the border and our immigration policies and things that have changed, kind of talk us up to where we are today in the way that uh, Joe Biden is going to handle it. Sure. Well, the Obama administration, as you know, uh, advocates, uh, people who uh, are opposed to restriction and, uh, and uh, strict enforcement, used to call President Obama the deporter-in-chief uh, because they wanted him. There was a lot of pressure on his left, on the left wing of that party, to you know, open the borders up and invite and welcome you know, immigrants who were crossing illegally. And uh, he I remember very clearly he, you know, explained, you know, I can't. The law is the law. 
And then, you know, we have to follow the law. I'm not allowed to, I can't call them off of, of, of doing that. And so during the Obama years, uh, probably three or four million uh, people were deported. A lot of them were criminal aliens. Uh, and and um, there was this sense that he wasn't tough enough on that. Trump, of course, came in. He sort of felt the, um, especially among kind of lower wage uh, earners and workers in the country, uh, that there was this tension about it, and he picked up on that and ran with it. And uh, some people say he won election on his immigration, tough immigration enforcement and deterrence policies. Uh, I think he did. I think he won on that, and it was really overlooked. So there is a pendulum that swings. We've got, uh, you know, a, um, a resurgent uh, progressive left in the Democratic Party that is demanding that Joe Biden not be another deporter in chief. And I think he keenly feels that, uh, felt it all during the primaries. And he made promises during the primaries in order to become the nominee. And the promises were all about, you know, we're going to uh, be lenient with uh, enforcement and we're going to be lenient on everything that uh, Donald Trump was not lenient on. And, you know, it would take a lot longer than we have here to go through all of that. But the bottom line is that throughout the Biden campaign, he messaged, his people messaged, not just to the American people, but to aspiring migrants, that he was going to swing the gates wide open. Uh, and so we'll see what, what happens. I mean, the very first day uh, today, he, uh, you know, rescinded the what's called the travel ban. Mm -hmm. Very symbolic. Uh, that's not illegal immigration over the border. That has more to do with uh, the granting of visas and travel visas to people from the 13 countries. That's gone today. And tomorrow he'll put forth his bill on for a comprehensive immigration reform that features primarily features an amnesty for, you know, 11 to 20 million illegally present people in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll go from there to just sort of he's promised to reverse and undo everything that Trump has done so far. And I'll just stop there and let you pick up. From you. Well, that that's a great uh path through the history. And I think even during the Trump administration, path to citizenship became a pretty popular thing, at least on the early onset. And the idea was that if you could prove that you contribute to society, you paid your taxes, you have a job and you were brought here and it wasn't you that came here, you're brought here as a child. There's all the, this checklist that says we, what we want you to do is to be able to have this opportunity to become a citizen. We're not going to do amnesty. But we, we want to make sure that you are someone that contributes, not just someone that's here to be here. And uh, I think there was support for that, but really it was just some Republicans that wanted it. And the other side of things, they wanted to just push mass amnesty. Now the support is there where they have uh, the, the, the tiebreaker in the Senate and the Democrats could definitely take something from the presidency and Joe Biden could offer this. So is the motion just to say anyone that's here and does not have a legal status, we're going to wave a wand and give you citizenship? Well, I mean, at the moment, and remember that, you know, this is just sort of the opening gambit. You know, there'll be a lot of wrangling and negotiation and who knows what will come out 
at the other end of the meat grinder. Uh, but at the moment, the proposal is that, you know, there's an eight-year timeline uh, for for selected people who are here illegally, uh, who, had, who have been here illegally through um, no later than January 1st of this year. So if you're talking about people who have, uh, you know, spent years and years, uh, you know, establishing themselves in America, you know, paid taxes, to, you know, stayed out of trouble – uh, January one was like three weeks ago, man. I don't know how you're <laughs> <know>. going to. <laughs> like, uh, okay, well, in three weeks they didn't. Nobody got raped or killed or you know, uh, killed in a, a DUI accident or anything like that. Uh, or you know, I don't know how far back you're going to go. So is that does that mean a year ago or two years ago or five years ago? It's very sort of nobody really knows exactly what that means and you know who would be eligible for it and the other issue with with the, the with the bill uh so far is that it 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 doesn't even pretend to have a countervailing security border security element of enforcement that you know in exchange for this you know path to citizenship as they call it which is like you know, maybe eight years uh then you can get uh you know, citizenship or be eligible for it. Um, there's nothing to say, well, we're going to keep other people from coming in. We're going to really crack down on that border, finish the wall, you know, put another 20,000 border patrol, whatever, nothing like that. It's just uh, left blank, which is profound because the last time we had anything like this, uh, 2007, I think, was the last serious one, but but the 86 amnesty under Ronald Reagan had this grand bargain in it that promised, in exchange for granting amnesty to millions of illegally present people, there would be all this border security and enforcement. The amnesty happened, but none of the enforcement ever happened. And so the gate was left open and millions more poured in waiting for the next inevitable amnesty. Right. And you know, they, they, they played it well because they're about to get one or there, there's a good chance that they'll get yeah. one. Do you so, mind holding on after the break? Because there's a couple of things I want to bring up what this could mean to national security, because I mean, there is a lot of things that go on on the Southern border when it comes to security. And I also want to talk about fighting COVID because when we look at other countries and even Canada, the way they look at the United States, they cut off the border because they wanted to use that as a way to fight the virus. What does that mean when we're trying to fight COVID and we're having hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border that we have undocumented? So two things I, I want to talk about security. And I also want to talk about COVID and what you think this policy could lead to if it's a threat or not to the United States. Do you mind holding on and talking about that after the break? Happy to. Happy to. So the book that's coming out in a few weeks, which you have to look up online, America's Covert Border War and author Todd Benzman will continue with him next on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. We're seeing some pretty big shifts in policy with President Joe Biden. We talked to Daniel Turner last hour about the future of power and the Keystone Pipeline. Another big one is border security. President Biden already said they're directing all funding away from 
building the wall, so there's going to be no more of that. What else does that mean for the southern border? Joining us is the Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies and author of a book that's coming in a few weeks called America's Covert Border War, Todd Benzman. Thank you again for joining us on Overnight America. Sure, thank you. So I wanted to ask you what you think could be the potential for problems when it comes to the change in policy. So some people would say that opening up the border Really, there's no threat in that. In fact, it's what we should be doing. But then other people would say, well, the things that we catch down at the southern border, there are some very serious things that would uh, open up the potential to be threats to our security. And on top of that, I look at our border policy between Canada and even Canada has stopped travel to the United States because of fear of COVID. And I think, well, what happens when you welcome hundreds of thousands of undocumented people from Mexico up into the United States or even those that have traveled from further distances in South America into the United States? That could be another threat, too. So I I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the change in policy with Joe Biden. What could be the threats for America? Well, there are a lot of variables here, um, of course a complicated issue, but let me just start with um, a trip that I took to the southern uh, border of Mexico with Guatemala about one year ago, one year ago this month. And I was down there interviewing migrants and checking out the uh, Mexican National Guard uh, troop deployment all over the border region there, which uh, was uh, sort of um, forced by Trump uh, to, to stop caravans from coming through there. And I was uh, touring that. Well, one, one thing that I discovered was that almost all of the migrants that I interviewed coming through uh, and trapped behind that National Guard uh, cordon was telling me that they planned to uh, stay anyway in Mexico. And I, when I'd say, well, why wouldn't you just go home and then come back uh, another time or something? And they said, well, we expect a Democrat to win office. And as soon as the Democrat wins office, we'll already be here and ready to go over the border. We expect the border to be open under the Democrats. Uh, I don't know how many I've uh, had tell me that, but the the point of it is that, you know, the, the, the universe of aspiring migrants all over the world have heard the messaging of the Biden campaign and the Biden promises to uh, open the border up and to be lenient and to be welcoming and to provide benefits and to reverse deterrence policies and uh, just undo everything. And so there's an expectation that once these pandemic-related border closures are lifted, Guatemala, Honduras, Uh, Mexico and the United States all have border closures, not letting anybody come and go all the way down Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama have these closures. And behind them are these teeming masses of people who are just absolutely, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on edge pressing to get to the U S border to, get over it because they know they'll be able to get in and work. So I think that um, the biggest issue is that there will be a significant surge, another kind of a crisis. And I'm not talking about a small one. I think it's reasonable to assume that there would be hundreds of thousands uh, hitting the border as soon as those pandemic border closures are lifted. 
we just saw a caravan uh, of 9,000. It swelled from 2,000. It started in Honduras, and by the time it got to the Guatemala border, it had swelled to 9,000, which is the largest caravan I've ever heard of, uh, smashing through the Honduran police and over the Hondur- the Guatemalan border uh, guard, and they were finally stopped by army troops. The Guatemalans put 5,000 troops out there to shut this thing down and disperse it. Uh, and it was all done on the basis of the pandemic border closure. And I really think that um, we are going to see really large numbers uh, and, and big, big caravans start to come and crash through these um, these border controls. And that's one issue. Um, the other issue is that uh, they're not just Central Americans. They are people from the Middle East, from the Horn of Africa, Yemen, Somalia, South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, uh, Lebanon, all of those countries uh, you know, that have terrorist oper- oper- operatives in them and groups also come through the same uh, routes up the South America, up through um, Panama. And in a mass migration crisis, there's very little way to vet those people. And so if you remember a few years ago, the same thing happened to Europe, the mass migration crisis. And ISIS saw that as a great opportunity, and they sent many dozens of operatives into that migration flow, posing as regular migrants. And they committed bloody mayhem from one end of Europe to the other. I mean, it's the terror attacks like Paris, the Paris attacks in Brussels, those were all done by people who snuck in over the border among larger numbers of benevolent uh, migrants. And those attacks are continuing to this day, to this day, for five years straight, all over Europe, Germany, France, uh, the UK, Sweden, Finland, Austria, everywhere. Uh, so if you're asking about you know, national security threats, that's certainly uh, a significant issue that we should expect to deal with. But I don't know if anybody's going to deal with it or be able to deal with it at the U.S. border. Yeah. And then you just I have find, re- yeah. Oh, I, I find that a lot of times when these issues are brought up, they say, "Oh, that's just that's such a small chance of that happening." It's it the the bigger moral issue of us turning people away or not being able to vet people or having a process where we try to vet is the bigger tragis, uh, travesty than all of this. But there are some. I mean, I think when you document this, and I'm guessing when you talk about it in your book, America's Covert Border War. I mean, there are some very serious things that come through the southern border that we might not see nightly on the news that are very concerning that we really do have to address. Well, you have to remember that um, there were only 19 hijackers for 9-11, and they changed the world, these 19 guys. And so while there may be, you know, small numbers, uh, you know, not large numbers, and, you know, we could say the same thing for Europe. The impact on societies, on peaceful Western societies, is just enormous. The cascading impacts. I mean, we're still at war in Afghanistan 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really just changed everything. And in Europe, too. I mean, Europe has been just changed from, you know, 
from bottom to top, every aspect of European society, it's just been securitized and the um, expenditures required. And there might, may have been maybe 150 terrorists that got in among the 3 million that were resettled, you know, mm-hmm. very small numbers. So, yeah, you can say uh, small numbers, but I would respond that, you know, 19 guys, 9-11 doesn't take many. Um, yeah, and, and that's their intention, not, and they, they find a vulnerability to take advantage of. That's right. And then, you know, it's it's also just the idea that, uh, you know, nations exist when they have borders. They're, they're finite territories. And, um, you, know, at, you know, at some point, nations have to decide, you know, how much is enough, how many are enough. When, when when do you cut that off? Is it is it just forever open? Because you know the you know Latin America, you know Central America, you know there's 20 million people down there that would you know move right over the border immediately and get into the United States if they. I mean, are we prepared as a society as a nation to you know just take on infinite ever infinite numbers of poor people in the world. And I think that, that that's a, a, you know, a national interest to decide to control your borders against that sort of a, of an entry. Hmm. So, well, what, uh, again, if if people wanted to find you online, some of your thoughts and even your book, where can they go? Well, the book is on Amazon, uh, America's covert border war. It's available for pre-order now. Uh, it'll be out in bookstores, wherever books are sold on the 9th. Uh, and then uh, you can read my stuff at toddbensman.com. It's my website. I put everything there. And um, cis.org, Center for Immigration Studies, is my employer. And a lot of my stuff is up there, too. Uh, most of my stuff is up there, too. So you can uh, track me that way. Great. Very easy to even do a search for the book, which is coming out, America's Covert Border War in Todd Bensman. Thank you so much for spending time with us tonight on Overnight America. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great discussion. He joined us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. And that's an important topic because with all of the changes in different policies, there are going to be some that are going to have effects And sometimes it's not long-term effects. I mean, there could be some pretty immediate short-term effects that we see. And I'm hoping that we don't have any problems with things sneaking into the border. Uh, But the likelihood, if you open things up, are going to just open up the floodgates. No pun intended, I guess. This is Overnight America KMOX. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. News Radio 1120 KMOX. The voice of the Cardinals. Overnight America continues. Welcome back. I thought that was a great couple of interviews we had there. We talked about energy. We talked about immigration. That's back on the burner. Normally, the start of any administration, those are some of the two biggest topics to tackle through the uh, initiatives and what we're seeing, some executive orders right off the bat trying to get into those graces, including Joe Biden who was right after his inauguration, they had a couple of things. He was in the Oval Office. He settled in pretty quickly. And when there were people in there, he kept the mask on the whole time. Here are the three executive orders, the first three things he wanted to do with this administration right off the bat. I think some of the things we're going to be doing are going to be bold and vital. And uh, there's no time to start like today. So uh, what I'm going to be doing, uh, I'm proud of today's executive actions. I'm going to start by keeping the promises I made to the American people. Long way to go. These are just executive actions. Uh, they are important, but we're going to need legislation for a lot of other things we're going to do. And the first order I'm going to be signing here is relates to uh, um, COVID. And uh, it's requiring, as I said all along, um, where, where I have authority, mandating masks be worn, social distancing be kept on federal property, on interstate commerce, etc. So this is the first one I'm signing. And the second one I'm signing here is the uh, support for uh, underserved communities. Uh, and we're going to already, we have, uh, we're going to make sure we have uh, some bedrock. Uh, Equity, equality, as it relates to how we treat people and healthcare and other things. And you can, we'll give you copies of these executive orders. And the third one I'm going to sign, and that's what I'm going to do while you're all here, is uh, the commitment I made that we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord uh, as of uh, as of today. The president uh, wrote a very generous letter. I have it's because it was private. I will uh, not talk about it until I talk to him. But uh, it was generous. All right. So that was basically at about a minute 50 in. Got a couple of them signed. I wonder if he's always going to sound exhausted all the time, because even when I, I know today was a whirlwind of events, but he's I mean, even days when it's not a bunch of 
meetings and press and all of that lined up back to back, he sounds tired. I just wonder if that's going to be the the future tone. And I saw this online and Aaron messaged this to me. He said that Joe Biden is the oldest president to be inaugurated by I forgot how many years, but still it's um it's up there. How old was Ron- Ronald Reagan when he was put in office? Because even then people were making fun of him for being too old. But Joe Biden going up there, I got to say, I, I just want to know if the energy level is going to kick up or not, because even when he's talking about like listen to this like listen to the gap he made it sound like it was a struggle to pick up an envelope i'm going to sign and that's what i'm going to do while you're all here is uh the commitment i made that we're going to rejoin the paris oh man so there's no real feeling to me that makes it sound like he is he, he has enough energy to make it through an entire busy day it's tough I know there's a lot going on, but still, he's the president. You would think maybe just a little bit more. And something else happened, too. There was the first press briefing with the new White House press secretary, Jen Paskey. I think that's how you say it. Uh, Paskey, P-S-A-K-I. And she went about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so. I was watching the stream online. There wasn't a lot of answers. There were some questions about, initial policies and how it may be different. Some of the things that they were going to handle. Let's play some of those. Let me do that real quick. I didn't, I wasn't planning on playing the whole thing for you. All I was going to do is play just a couple of uh, questions that I thought were worth it. Uh, Now I I lost the clip. Hold on. I had it here for a second and then I pressed a button and unfortunately it reorganized my clips. Okay, here we go. So this is a couple of minutes long. Uh, these are just a highlight of some of the questions that I thought were interesting. On this COVID relief package, uh, Senator Romney was already saying to reporters today that he doesn't see a need for another virus relief package, and he's the kind of Republican vote you're likely going to be trying to get. Um, so how long are you willing to try to work to get Republican support before you decide to go through the budget reconciliation process instead? Well, uh as, as you know, because uh, you all cover it, and as I've stated a couple times here today, we are in the middle of an urgent crisis in this country. It's not just impacting Democrats. It's impacting Republicans. It's impacting red states and blue states. Um, and this plan is intended to address the suffering of the American people. So we hope and, and frankly, we expect Republicans in Congress and Democrats, too, will support assistance that will bring relief to the people they represent. This is a conversation. Uh, he, of course, gave a primetime address, as you all know, last week. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't, uh, to announce his specifics. And he has already had a number of conversations with Democrats and the Republicans. Those will continue. Uh, his clear preference uh, is to move forward with a bipartisan bill. Uh, There's no question about it. But we are also not going to take any tools off the table for how the Senate, House and Senate can get this urgent package done. So we are only less than a day has he been president of the United States, but uh, he's going to continue to work with members of both parties to get it done. So, okay, so what does that say? So they say, oh, we're going to this is good for the people. And, well, we're not going to take it off the table to ram something through. Now, think about the negotiations that went on during the last year. And for months and months and months, Pelosi dragged her feet. The Republicans put an offer out there and dragged, dragged, dragged until eventually she ended up taking a deal that was less than what the Republicans offered originally. And she even received some criticism for that and immediately snapped back, 
snap back. Well, here we now have an administration that's saying that, well, forget about that. I guess if we don't get what we want, we're just going to shove it down and force it. I don't know if that's a good start when you're talking about bipartisan support to say, oh, we might just do it anyway. This is back when President Obama was in office, the huge criticisms of him just, you know, signing and bringing out the magic pen and we're just going to executive order everything. Are we going to see more of that? So if President Biden wants a theme of his presidency to be unifying the country, does he think that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer should drop a potentially divisive Senate impeachment trial? Well, he spoke today, as you all saw, uh, about unity in his inaugural address and the importance of unity in bringing the country together um, and the resolve of the American people in uh, helping to uh, get through this moment. Um, you know, we are confident, though, that um, just like the American people can, the Senate can also uh, multitask and they can uh, do their constitutional duty while continuing to conduct the business of the American people. And his view is that the way to bring the country together is to address the problems we're facing. And so that means uh, getting this COVID relief package through, having Democrats and Republicans take a serious look at that and have conversations with each other about how to move it forward. And he's going to leave the mechanics, the timing and the specifics of how Congress moves forward on impeachment to them. And All right. So, again, a lot of uh, let's let's just kind of like we'll just kind of dance around the topic. And I think that's how she's going to handle most of these questions. There's a pretty big contrast now. When the administration first started up, President Trump would attend some of these and answer some questions, and he would spend a lot of time behind the podium. That kind of went on a lull for a while, and then he came back. During the coronavirus task force hearings, he would come out and spend an hour and a half answering questions, either coronavirus-related or political questions, in front of the press and have no issue doing that couple of days a week. I mean, he would do it four or five days a week he would do this, one after another after another. Uh, I wonder how many days Joe Biden will come out and answer some of these questions or if we're just going to get these roundabout answers as in, oh, maybe kind of sort of. Yeah, but not really. The Is that what it's going to be the M.O.? And is he going to be able to answer for himself in this? Because even in the White House, it seems like when the press asked him a question, he was willing to answer it. Do you think he can stand up behind the podium and answer tough questions if they even throw tough questions at him for an hour and a half? I'd like to see it. Give it a shot. Uh, quick follow up on President Trump's inauguration day. He filed the paperwork to run for reelection. Same day. Uh, does President Biden have any plans to do that today, late or in the coming days? I will say, having talked to him today, his his focus is not on politics. It is on uh, getting to work and solving the problems of the American people. Uh, so, and as he noted or, uh, on the campaign, uh, he will wait until uh, sometime into his first term to speak more about his uh, political plans moving forward. Uh, oh. You know, I think we know the answer there. <laughs> he is 78 years old. He turned 79 this year, later in the year. Um, yeah, I just do not see that happening, honestly, because he's going to be up there. I think he's already struggling with the the physical side in the demanding nature of this job and it's day one so i don't think so but again another roundabout answer but it's a question that i'm surprised they even asked uh, owen jensen with ewtn global catholic network two big concerns for pro-life americans the hyde amendment 
which of course uh, keeps taxpayer dollars, as you know, from paying for abortions, Medicaid abortions, and the Mexico City policy, which under the previous administration they expanded to keep tax dollars from overseas paying for abortions. So what are President, what is President Biden planning on doing on those two items right now? Uh, well, I think we'll have more to say on the Mexico City policy in the coming days. Um, uh, but I will just take the opportunity to remind all of you that he is a devout Catholic and somebody who attends church regularly. Uh, he started his day attending church with his family this morning. Um, but I don't have anything more for you on that. Janet, uh, the president did not mention the word Trump in his inaugural address today. What was the intention behind not making any direct reference to his predecessor in that speech? Well, I think the intention was to make the speech not about uh, any individual uh, elected official, any current president, former president, but make it about the American people and the moment we're facing in history uh, right now, the, the um, struggles that millions of Americans are facing uh, who don't have jobs, uh, the uh, fear people have about the health of uh, their grandparents and their cousins and their brothers, um, and to make it more about um, the strength of the American people when they come together uh, and not about any individual. But as, as, as you saw in his speech, it was forward looking. It was not meant to look back on the past. Okay. Again, non-answers, which is fine. It's day one. I just wonder if that's going to be the MO. So I had to look this up real quick. Ronald Reagan was almost 70 years old when he was sworn into office, 69 years old, 349 days. So his birthday, um, just a, a few days after. Okay. So Donald Trump became one of the oldest, I think the oldest when he was sworn in at 70 years old in 220 days when he was sworn into office in 2016. I don't think that's even close to anyone else. Let's see. Zachary Taylor was sworn in at 64. James Buchanan at 65. Uh, a lot of presidents in their 50s. Truman was at 60 years old. Eisenhower, 62 years old. And uh, Ronald Reagan, 69 years old, almost 70. Joe Biden on the day he's sworn in, 78 years old in some change. It's a pretty big gap between the two. So I, I think it's a warranted question. Maybe they're being just a little bit, little bit courteous in the way that they're asking about reelection in there. But we got to be realistic in that, too. When we come back, a few other things I wanted to bring up in one of the pardons from Donald Trump was Kwame Kilpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit. I mean, I am just so upset that he decided to pardon Kwame Kilpatrick. I want to talk about him and what he did to Detroit while he was the mayor there coming up after the break. It's Overnight America KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. In Overnight America continues, I the only way I can put his corruption into proper context is to compare what happened here in St. Louis to what happened in Detroit. Now, if you look at everything Steve Stanger did and eventually landed him in a federal prison where he sits today, he looks like the Pope compared to the actions of Kwame Kilpatrick. Kwame Kilpatrick was the mayor of Detroit in the 2000s. He was elected and then reelected. And then after that, later found to be incredibly corrupt. I think everyone knew he was leading into it. He had 28 years sentence on federal prison and also uh, other prison sentences, original sentences. He was found and convicted for obstruction of justice, 
assault of a police officer, racketeering, tax evasion, extortion, and mail fraud. And eventually what took him down was him sexting with people, getting caught doing that towards the end of his uh, term. And then, boom, all these other things finally fell into place. Let me talk about some of the crimes of Kwame Kilpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit, who Donald Trump decided to commute his sentence. And I'm very upset that he decided to do this. I think it's terrible. Now, if you were to go and look at some of the reaction in Detroit, some people believe his sentence was too long to begin with. But if you're someone that takes advantage of the people of the city you're meant to serve, and I mean, really take advantage, I have no sympathy for you. Then again, there was all of these other problems around with it. So let me go and I'm just going to go straight to the Wikipedia page because I'm going to go straight to the section that says controversies, felony trials, and incarceration. You can find this on that. It just do a search for him. So in the fall of 2002, it was alleged that Kilpatrick um, held a party at the mayor's mansion, a co-owned, uh, a city-owned residence for the mayor of Detroit. Part of that were strippers in there. And Kwame's wife comes home unexpectedly and attacks one of the exotic dancers. This is all what was alleged. Other people were there. Internal affairs got involved. Police were there. And there was actually people willing to testify for this sort of thing who were later fired and then sued the police department because they were whistleblowers of this. And then eventually, since they sued and they were wrongfully terminated, awarded six and a half million dollars. OK, so there is some warranted uh, concern and truth to what happened there. Well, the exotic dancer went by the name of Strawberry. She was 27 years old, performed at this mansion, allegedly, and was one of the people that was assaulted by the mayor's wife when she came home unexpectedly to find this. Well, she was murdered right ahead of trying to testify against the things that went there. Police and investigators believe it was a deliberate hit. And this is leading up to her testifying against the mayor. Now, this was another thing that was a giant controversy and do not believe that it was unrelated to everything that went down. Now, let's fast forward to, to the whistleblower trial. Lawsuits were against Kilpatrick's ex-bodyguards and them claimed to have been fired because of an internal probe and then all kinds of violations going on with physical assault. You can find those too. On top of that, now keep in mind, when he was in office, he was buying these escalates for everyone. You should see the way that he manipulated and just took this money. He had people on the payroll. It was, if I remember correctly, I don't see this in the Wikipedia page, but I remember this because I was living in Detroit at the time and looking at the evidence that was laid out against him. He would bring on like all of his cousins onto the payroll and they would claim like 200 hours a week or something crazy like that, claiming all this overtime for no, no work rendered. And it was just a way to milk the taxpayers. And he was I mean, he had these escalades and things and he was doing it in a way where it was going under the radar. Um, and I might have the numbers wrong, but if I remember this correctly, if you had if you're the mayor and we're going to spend 50 grand or more, you had to get uh, city council approval. So he would buy these escalates or lease them for forty nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars. So he wouldn't need approval. And he was doing this and he was just, you know, he's driving around. He's getting it for his wife, his family members and stuff like that. Um, and this is just the tip of the iceberg and all of the problems in the fraud and the racketeering that went down during his time in office. Now, keep in mind, when he was charged, he had 30 felony counts that he was charged with. He was found guilty of 24 of them, 24 felonies. He did terrible things when he was the mayor of Detroit, got caught, was found guilty, rightfully so. And I feel zero sympathy for him for being in prison. He was only in prison for a, what, uh, several years. I think it was 2013 or so that he was found guilty originally. 
And he's seven years in prison, eight years in prison. That's it. And now the president said, well, we'll get you out. And he's now a free man. I think he's got probation and a, a fine to pay, but that's it. it it's, to me, it is just disgraceful. I hated seeing that. It made me so upset. I just so upset. Did not deserve to get out of jail. I got to get someone from Detroit to come on and talk about this because, I mean, it is just an insane story. It really is. And you, if you want to talk about corruption, this guy is easily the most corrupt mayor I've seen. And there's been some pretty bad ones. All right. We'll be right back. It's Overnight America KMOX. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Oh, 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 Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 